0: So tell us about your
1: conference, Gary. <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, sounds like great. Sounds
1: awesome. I was going to
2: say, <laughs> it sounds fascinating. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to com slash new relic. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com Ruby. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 67 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Hello, everyone. Josh Susser. Good morning. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, and that's Gary Bernhardt. Hello. So, Gary, you've been on the show before. Um, Do you want to just briefly introduce yourself since you're not a regular uh, member of the show?
1: Uh, Sure. I'll just do the really quick version. Um, I own Destroy All Software, which is a company that produces screencasts uh, every other week. Um, I work mostly in Python and Ruby historically although uh, I tend to become very bored with things, and I'm becoming very bored with, with Ruby at this point, to be honest. Um, and yeah, I think that's a sufficient uh, introduction. So Destroy All Software will be
0: soon be Destroy All
1: Haskell? Oh, mm, I, w- I wouldn't go that
0: far. I <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not that language. <laughs> that's awesome. So, cool. Gary, Destroy All Software, uh, I, I've watched all the episodes now. I'm, I'm actually current. Um, you have like these recurring themes. What what would you say the main recurring themes are? Uh,
1: well, OO design tends to come back over and over again. Although um, what I'm what I'm talking about when I say OO design usually bears little resemblance to classical OO design or, or what Alan Kay would would call OO design. Probably um, another big one, of course, is, is testing, which uh, historically I, I've talked mostly about isolated. Testing or close to isolated, although recently I've been talking about um, things that are still isolated testing, I guess, except not doing it in the traditional mock-and-stub kind of way. And, of course, then there's uh, a lot of Unix stuff that tends to come back, um, shell stuff, a little bit of Vim, a little bit of Git. Um, I think the three big ones, though, are OO design, testing, and and Unix.
0: Yeah, so your testing... uh is is one of the really interesting parts for me as watching it um i think it was watching destroy all software that i really got good with uh mocking and stubbing like i i think that's one of the things you just do very well and it's easy for me to pick it up watching uh your episodes and stuff and that's always seems to me it's it was a major focus in the series for a long time um and then recently you did this episode, and I've talked to multiple people that agree with me that this episode was a real uh, kind of mind-blowing, changing point of view kind of thing. And that one was called Functional Core Imperative Shell. So can you give us like the 10,000-foot view of what that was? Sure. Um... So in that screencast, I'm
1: I'm still doing isolated testing in that I'm testing exactly one, one class with behavior and it's not integrating with any others. But instead of using mocks and stubs, I, I basically just write it in a functional way. So it takes values in and returns values. And that is a natural way to isolate code because if the things you're passing in have no behavior, if they're just data, and if the things that come out are just data and you're testing only one class or you're executing only one class then you're not integrating with anything. You're you're naturally isolated. Um, So I do that, and then that is the core of the program. It's it's many classes that have uh, fully functional behavior. They they don't mutate anything, and they don't call into any other classes. And then around that is a thin layer of imperative code that does things like uh, observes a keystroke coming in and invokes one of these functional classes and then updates a reference that the imperative shell holds So if you hit J to go down a row in this Twitter client that I work on in that screencast, uh, hitting J constructs a new version of the cursor that represents where, where, which line we're looking at, and then updates the global reference to it. It's not truly global, but, but conceptually global. Um, So those are the two pieces, the the functional core and the imperative shell.
0: So that was really interesting to me. And, and just to make a, Uh, totally clear you did like a lot of things in there for uh one there's pretty much no uh stubbing or mocking at all i think you did have one tiny stub that that uh was just one specific case but for the most part there was no stubbing or mocking is that right yeah the um
1: All the parts that are actually tested in that project uh, are tested in full isolation. And there, there is, there's one file that has two stubs in it, but I actually don't need them. I don't, I think I just did it because it's so um, natural for me at this point. I accidentally put a stub in for, for a tweet, um, but I didn't need it. So it's fully isolated except for the imperative shell, which is not actually tested, which is the other part. That's, that's kind of weird.
0: Yeah. That was really interesting to me because We've been reading uh, the uh, Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Test. That's our book club book right now. We're going to talk about it on next week's episode. And I'm under the impression from watching you in your series, I don't know if you've ever come out and said it, but I'm about 90% sure you've read that book, right?
1: Uh, I actually have not read. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um,
2: He's just smart all by himself.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I think I was pretty early on the isolation train and I don't think it was actually, what, what year was
0: that? Do you remember? I, I think. That's um, a good question. I don't know off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, it was, it was not, it's not very old. Um, and I, I'm almost positive that was, that I was well into the isolation thing before that book came out. Um, I actually started reading it. I actually have a copy of it about two feet away from me, but, um, I've not yet completed it. 2009, according to Amazon. Okay, so I was already isolating for about 2 years at that point.
0: That's interesting. Sure. So
2: so I have a question. When when you talk about isolating, are you talking about just doing unit tests and mocking out the stuff you don't, you know, that that it just calls to and you know kind of putting stubs on there so you know that it called the right thing or are we actually talking about um We've talked about in, in other settings, the, like the fast test that Corey Haynes does, where you're actually almost isolating it from its dependencies as well.
1: Yeah, when I say isolating, I'm usually talking about the, the second thing you mentioned, which is um, sort of the broader form. So my, the, general, the general rule, if I had to put a rule on it, is uh, execute only one class that actually does something. Uh, it might integrate with, with a second class that just has data in it, so it's really just a struct um, but only execute one class that actually does a thing. That's not a hard and fast rule, but if you had, if you had to give a rule, that would be the one.
2: So that seems really abstract to me. Can you give me an example?
3: I, I, I want to jump in. I've been I've been good and quiet here. <laughs> the, um, the, so the, um, you know, I haven't I haven't watched the screencast, and I I think I I got it now. <laughs> but it, I mean, it, it sounds pretty cool. But from a perspective of TDD, I can see that. If you're, if you impose some constraints on your on your testing style that you're not going to stub or mock, that and that you only want to be testing uh, small pieces of the system, that uh, I can see that that would be useful to help you achieve this. So, so I mean, is is that what you do? You, um, you know, you're, you're you're driving this from the test side.
1: Uh, yeah, that was that was what originally led me to it. Um, I. I, I love all the good things that come out of isolated testing. And mostly those are, first of all, the tests are very fast. Uh, a millisecond is, is a pretty long time if you're only executing a single class. So everything tends to be extremely fast. And it also tends to give you very good feedback on the design. So if you're if you're stubbing or mocking every single thing you interact with and you look at that test and you see six mocks being set up at the top of it, you know that you're collaborating with too many objects. So it has a natural feedback mechanism for interaction complexity in the system. But if you, if you now replace those mocks and stubs with objects, uh, with data, you get, you can get the same feedback because you'll still have to construct all those things it interacts with. It's just that now they're values, which means that, that you're not, you don't have this artificial uh, boundary that you're mocking. You, you have a real boundary, which is right. the, the attributes on that class and their types.
3: Mm-hmm. The, um, how would you characterize that in terms of uh, what kind of connessence that is? Or connessence?
1: Oh, my. Right. Um, it's been a long time since I watched one of Jim's talks on that. Uh, there's like connessence
3: of naming and position and
1: value. Uh, I don't know if there's actually a, a type of connessence for... for the, I guess mocking mocking is really all of them because you have to mock the right name. You have mm-hmm. to... Right position, and you have to mock the right type, and those are all weak forms of kinesis, But um, there's there's several of them there. Whereas with with a value, you just have to get the right. As long as you construct the right class, you're good. So that is more
4: kinesis of just name. And Can I guess I you, in here. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Hi, this is this is David Brady. I was lurking on the call, and I was in. I'm in an all day meeting, and they just broke for lunch. Um, I would suggest Knaissance of Interface because that's what we're up against. Knaissance, basically, the the litmus test is what is the thing that has to change in order to break my test or break my code? And we're mocking the crap out of everything right now because we're dumb. And um, we've actually got a data object. We have no idea what attributes this thing is going to have. So we're mocking out this this interface for it rather than going and defining the class. And it's starting to hurt. And um, the thing is, is... Because we're mocking, the interface is actually de- the real interface is actually decoupled from our tests, and I'm 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 starting to feel pain from this because um, you could stand up the real system and all our specs would pass, but that object doesn't exist yet, and so I would be tempted to switch to a a live object or some kind of a dumb object. That at least you know imposes the same dynamic interface, so that I could test it. So that if you know if the valid method or the save method doesn't work, my test would actually reflect that.
1: So what you're talking about there is more of uh, faking, which is mm-hmm. creating a secondary implementation that is simpler but does sort of the same thing, like an mm-hmm. in-memory store instead of a database, which mm-hmm. is fine. But that mixes behavior and state and is much more difficult to do well. Mm-hmm. Than to either just stub the thing out. I mean, it's much more—it's much more locally difficult to create that correct fake than it is to just immediately stub something out, or to just construct a value and pass it in. Mm-hmm. And I think that constructing a value and passing it in and getting a value out has sort of all the benefits of, of both the stub and the fake. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's easy to do, but it also does not have that—that that sort of. Um, uh, it, it's not. It's not smashing over an interface and assuming that interface is there it is the interface there there's nothing to go out of sync there
3: Mm -hmm. okay uh, uh, so this makes sense uh to me from a testing perspective and and i can see how the how the code could get structured and that would uh have a lot of really nice attributes about how it works the the thing that um seems like would be the place that trips people up all the time is that if you are down in one of these functional classes It doesn't have any side effects or anything, but you run into an issue there where it changes its requirements You say, oh, God, oh, I need to be passing in the birthday instead of just the name. And then that goes and then that ripples out into what is passing in a value. So the values that you pass into that thing now change. And then if you have other pieces in the system that are dependent on what those values are, you now have to follow those dependencies and update all those places, too.
1: Um, Yes. And that, so that is a problem that clearly exists with, with mocks and stubs as well. mm -hmm. Um, That's the sort of chasing, chasing, uh, chasing the types down when they change, right? That's, that's basically what you're talking
3: about. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you get some brittleness in the system there because everything's dependent on this one thing.
1: Um, I think that, well, so that depends on whether you're using a, a, a dynamic language or not. In Ruby, that's definitely the case. If you were, if everything's being statically linked, then that problem can't really exist because okay. you know, all the types are right. Uh, I think that that's actually a fundamentally a dynamic language problem. I don't see a way that you could avoid that, regardless of how you're how you're testing.
3: Do, um, well, if you're passing around a hash, all. Uh, Maybe you can talk about the kind of values that you're passing in. I haven't watched the screenshot, the the screencast, so I don't know. I mean, are you actually passing in something as dynamic as as a hash where you can decide what what key values are in there?
1: No. Or um,
3: or is it a typed object?
1: Yeah, it's it's a typed object. It's Mm -hmm. it's a struct, a Ruby struct. Um, Hashes are are far too permissive for doing this, I think. It, 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 It takes away all of your control, especially because Ruby hashes return nil by default, which is really bad. Um, so yeah I'm using, I'm using structs and uh, if there were something more strict, actually I'm not even using structs, I'm using values which is a, a library by Tom Crayford that is like struct except even more strict it won't return nil for missing things and it won't allow you to omit uh, fields what was that called?
0: values with mm-hmm. an S. Yeah. it's much more closer to the um, the goos idea of a value object than struct is so, Gary, one of the things in Destroy All Software kind of leading up to this uh, screencast that I brought up is you you do a, a lot of episodes, in my opinion, on the back and forth of mocks. Like, that's that's actually what I love about watching Destroy All Software. Um, you do a lot of mocking and stuff like that, but I think you do a really good job of showing... Uh, the pain points of that, you know, showing scenarios where that leads you into trouble and why it led you into trouble and trying to come up with rules, you know, where, okay, here's how you might avoid that scenario or things like that. So I got the impression watching, and, and tell me if this isn't the case, but I got the impression that that in all of that, you know, examining the good and bad of mocks that's what kind of led you to this functional core imperative shell to try that is that right? I think
1: that's probably a pretty fair first approximation of how I got there Um, there's also I've been over time I've become more and more concerned with uh, immutability which which also factors into that uh, because the the whole functional core does not mutate anything it only constructs new values but the problem with immutability is um, when in languages that are purely immutable, uh, like Haskell, for example, you tend to it tends to be very difficult to do things like IO or basically anything stateful. So that's why Haskell is full of confusing things like the IO monad. But in Ruby, the IO monad doesn't make a lot of sense to use, I don't think, because it's not statically enforced. So I was I've been thinking about this for, for years, really, all the way back into Python how do you marry immutable data to the dynamic languages where um, it's, it's you can't statically enforce that stuff? So you need to have some kind of division between mutation and not mutation that you understand and is clear. And that is why I broke it into these two pieces. That's exactly where that came from. The, the functional core is the code I want to write, and the imperative shell is the code that I have to write in order to interface to the, the rest of the world.
0: That's a really neat way to think about it, I yeah. think.
3: That's the way I think of controllers in MVC.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: So I'm going to admit to being a little bit lost. I
2: haven't seen the video that you're talking about. Um, So can you just briefly sum up what the basic points are of the video so that I can kind of, you know, fit what we have been talking about into the context that you're talking in?
1: Um, Yeah. So
3: TLDW.
1: You can watch it at 2X if that's true. Uh, the, the basic ideas are that you, you you want to write you want to write functional code, uh, code that doesn't mutate anything, because it is easier to understand and it's harder to make certain classes of mistakes. There's no state to mutate, right? It's just just create values, call a function, new values come out. That's all that happens. Uh, I want to be able to write code that way because I can write better, uh, more correct code more easily. But because this nasty world of of networks and disks and humans needs to interact with your code, you have to marry that functional stuff to it somehow. And that's, so that's the second piece. The first piece is the functional core, which does all of the actual work, all the thinking in the program. And then the imperative shell does things like receive user input and uh, call the functional code or, um, take the values that come out of the functional code and update the screen from them. So it is the boundary um, between the functional code and the rest of the world. Does that help at all?
2: Kind of. Um, I, I am wondering then if you're talking about testing code written in a functional language, or are you writing <laughs> functional code in Ruby and then testing it there, or what?
0: Yeah. The, screen, the screencast is done in Ruby. And so like to give an example, it's a, it's a Twitter client, um, and so, you know, like you said, there's this functional core, this set of objects that uh, talk to each other and behave, but they're, they're functional, they're immutable, they don't, you know, they don't have side effects. And then the shell is, is almost like the, the UI primarily that sits on top of it. And that, you know, it it sees you press this key on your keyboard, grabs that key and just passes it into one of those functional methods. Okay. Or it wants to update the screen. So it calls one of those functional methods, which returns like an array of lines that is actually what should be on the screen, right? And so it clears the screen and creates those those lines or whatever. And that it just it's just sending data in and pulling data back out and then sending it to like, you know, reading from the keyboard, sending it to the screen or something like that.
3: Okay. So yeah, yeah. Uh, li- yeah. Li- listening, Listening to that description, th- th- thanks James, that, I think that clarified a lot of stuff, but listening to that, uh, the first place I went was, wow, that must really be hard on the garbage collector.
1: Well it depends on how good your garbage collector is and ours is good so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's
0: I, actually that's actually an interesting point though because um, you're right right and Ruby collector Ruby's garbage collector generally is is pretty poor so uh, it it can be painful but I don't know if you guys remember I talked recently about doing the ICFP contest and mm-hmm. this year right. I used a real functional design there. And I actually used the fact that the references weren't changing to my advantage so that I could search a very large space without making millions of objects. And it was still totally functional and actually ran quite quickly because Ruby's garbage collector wasn't so stressed. So I, I don't think it has to be a bad scenario, but it, it, but yeah, it certainly can be.
5: Yeah, yeah one of yeah, the I, things I, I was going to ask is, is – um, if you've started looking into any of the the Ruby immutable collection libraries that have started to to pop up, sort of you know based on on the the closure standard library,
1: I haven't, but um, I, I would love to. There's I forget the name, but there's one there's one that's pretty popular that's a set of uh, persistent 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 collections. Um, Tribe persistent. That's
5: the word I was looking for.
1: Yeah, which is a confusing word because it's not usually what persistent means.
5: <laughs> not in um, OO world anyway.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, c- going back to, to the garbage collector thing, the memory thing, um, I think that, I mean, obviously, this, this is a big problem for Ruby. It, it's 2012 right now, right? Um, I think that either an implementation with, with a real GC is going to win or or Ruby's going to lose a lot of market share. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting that this is not actually a problem for Python because cPython is reference counted. It's also, it has a garbage collector, but the collector only kicks in if you have circular references. So if you have a function and it creates a bunch of, a bunch of objects and then returns and they're not referenced, it immediately frees them when the function returns. So it doesn't have to do uh, a mark and sweep across all these tiny objects you create, which I thought, I've thought i always thought has been a wonderful uh, benefit of C Python. It allows you to do things like this. It, it gracefully transitions into these other paradigms. Um, I don't want to uh, get off on a Python rant, but but it's an interesting yeah. thing to note. Yeah, I, I, to,
3: not to get too uh, too VM implementer um, crazy here, but uh, I, I, I find it interesting that that people are still doing reference counting and you know you know in in this era and that and that it apparently is some sort of performance benefit because that you know, if you just look at the amount of CPU cycles you have to spend counting references if you do it on every method activation or every method uh, return, that you, you have to count every object. And the whole point of shifting from reference counting to mark and sweep is that you don't have to do that counting all the time. You only have to do it when you run out of space. So the the you can actually count the number of time the number of CPU cycles you're spending memory managing memory. And it's far less if you just do mark and sweep.
1: I think that's only true if you are if you have a sufficiently good VM implementation. And neither C Python nor MRI has historically been any good. Basically, when you compare it to, to a real VM, like, um, if you compare it to strong talk or, or the JVM, I mean, they're, yeah. they're just they've always been laughable. So mm-hmm. um, I think when you're when your VM is that bad, that's when that's when reference counting wins.
3: <laughs> OK, <laughs> we'll, we'll just leave it at that.
4: <laughs> it. Okay, I'm, I'm kind of
3: curious. Sorry. Go I was ahead. just saying enough of that digression. You're curious. <laughs> are you on, uh, are you on Mars?
5: <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> um yes beep beep I, well, I have no idea uh, what noises the uh,
2: Mars rovers actually make
1: I don't think it's I, deep, like
5: to imagi- it's I like to imagine them beeping around the surface
4: does, doesn't does curiosity actually tweet oh yeah <laughs> so I want to so, so okay. put a, a voice encoder on it so it can say now you've made me very angry
5: <laughs>
4: I'm just waiting for it to run into
5: Doctor Who wandering around um <laughs> so <laughs> nice um excuse me the uh the, the thing that i've been wondering about is is uh so when i'm i've been um i've been a fan of of making as much of the the uh the functions or methods in a in a program immutable as possible for a long long time i used to to like um, slap const all over like everywhere on my on my C++ methods and stuff like that way back in the day and um, but the one thing that, that does tend to show up when when you do more of a functional style is you wind up putting more complexity into the data structures that you pass from from one function to another and um, and that can become uh, somewhat constrictive over time as, you know, as you have a lot of, a lot of methods that have intimate knowledge about, you know, what those value objects are expected to look like. Um, you know, the, as a sort of a a real basic example from your screencast, you know, you're, you're for the screen that you're, you're putting up, you're dealing with, um, an array of strings, which, you know, an array of strings isn't a hugely complex data structure, but, but, um, you know, but There is kind of a lot in Ruby. There's a lot there because array has quite a lot of quite a large API. A string has quite a large API, Um, you know, and and one of the arguments for mocking and stubbing is that uh, it makes it makes the the API dependencies between your methods and the things your methods use um, painful very quickly. So, you know, the more, the more dependencies there are, there the more your method knows about the its collaborators. The the more mocks and stubs you uh, sort of blow it up with. And you know, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. And you know, like, is that a problem? Uh, the the growth of you know the the knowledge of these data objects, or is that sort of uh, for you? Is that a, a you know not an issue?
1: Uh, well, the the functional folks would would tell you that it is a benefit because uh, traditionally, what what functional programmers want to do is have intelligent as intelligent a data structure as possible. Right? Intelligent data structure is um, a term that, that that they use positively. i I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about this, um, but I will say that when i when I do lots of actual object interactions, <clears throat> excuse me, when I do lots of actual object interactions. Uh, I I sometimes wish that I had sort of a transaction around it because when something wrong happens and I detect it, unrolling unrolling in the middle of, of that operation can be difficult. And one of the things that I noticed is that when you transition a system from object interactions into values being passed around, you end up with values that are the transaction, which I think is sort of nice. And this is like the most obvious possible thing you could ever say to a functional programmer, probably. But I, I really liked that the 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 set of the, the large scale operations were represented by a single entity that was the operation. Um, so there, I think there are definitely benefits there. And the functional guys aren't aren't dumb. They you know they have reasons that they like intelligent data structures. Um, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, which is why I've been programming with the two layers: right, the functional layer and then the imperative layer around it. And kind of, kind
5: of related to that, um, do you, do you see this as being just sort of generally applicable to, 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 any programming problem or is it, does it work better for, I mean, like the, the, the demo app that, that is in the screencast is kind of a one way flow. So you have, you know, you have from the Twitter verse through some reformatting onto the screen. Uh, and I'm curious if, if, Stuff that has more back and forth, you know, moving parts, uh, you know, still, does it still break down as easily?
1: I'm going to guess that it doesn't. Um, I think the more that you have active back and forth, the more that uh, MVC, real MVC, like small talk MVC, the more that's going to make sense, I would guess. Uh, I haven't, I haven't done, an, I've been writing functional code for a long time, uh, but I haven't been segregating it this, this sort of uh, intentionally for very long. So I'm not I'm not sure about what the implications will be.
0: So have you uh, read, I think it's Gregory Moak, if I'm pronouncing his name right, had a blog post recently called um, Don't Make Your Code More Testable. Have you read that, Jerry?
1: I have read it. Um, I'm not sure I have a very good memory of it. I might need a quick refresher.
0: Um, it was basically about uh, how... I feel like you've, you've done a lot of this in Destroy All Software uh, without coming right out and saying it, but he, he's basically talked about how he's glad that the um, uh, Ruby community is is currently pretty focused on, you know, mocking and stubbing and, and uh, isolated testing, things like that, but that we seem to be doing it for the end of um, making our code more testable. Whereas the, he believes the end we should be striving for is to improve the design. And so he shows uh, an example and, and talks about it where it's like, you know, we're, we're putting everything in this, uh, separate stuff, not, not necessarily even thinking about whether or not it improves the design, uh, and stuff like that. So, uh, it, I thought this dovetailed nicely with uh, what kind of what you've been doing lately and the, the functional core imperative shell. And that, like, to me, you almost did this because it was the, the ideal way you could test this, that by, you know, removing the mocks and stubs from the equation and taking it down to just a layer that you could really easy, easily reason about, um, that was very easy to test and prove correct, but then you still had to deal with the outside world. So you had that layer that just, you know, took the basic stuff and passed it in and out. And, and I guess that's just what I wanted to say, that I felt like there was a great synergy there that you were, you were doing it because it was the best way you could get to the design. Is that what you think?
1: Um, Yeah, I I think that's fair. Uh, Now I do. As soon as you started that description, I I totally remembered uh, Greg's post and he's absolutely right. Um, The, the whole fast tests and Rails thing has been um, sort of a wedge with which we have we have driven isolation in to Rails programmers' heads. But speed is is not the the best thing about it. It's nice to have fast tests, and it's important to have fast feedback. But the the ultimate goal, the really important thing, is the design of the system, and uh, that has been my top goal since the beginning. Even though I phrased my discussion of it in terms of speed, because I knew that that was what would would grab people most directly. And I would guess that this is probably true for Corey Haynes as well, who's also talked about it a lot. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that he would he would agree that that the speed we've emphasized the speed because that was what what grabs people most directly.
0: That makes sense. All right. Now I want to ask you the really hard question. In uh, growing object-oriented software and, and most, you know, TDD-driven things, um, the acceptance tests play a really important role. And you, you start with that acceptance test, and then you actually drill down to the layers and flesh them out with the unit tests. And um, you, you know that by doing that, you're testing the thing end-to-end, and uh, doing that, and with your imperative shell and functional core, what you're basically saying is the imperative shell was not tested. So you didn't have in test uh, tests covering end-to-end. And uh, so, you know, according to the typical test-driven test driven Uh, definition, you know, how how did you have a metric to know that you were done or you had done the right things or you had not built in needless functionality or things like that?
1: Well, to to directly answer your question, um, I think I just used the Rich Hickey method, which is I'm smart and I can look at it uh, and, and know whether it's right or not. (laughs) <laughs> um, the more the more general answer, I think, is that if if it hadn't been a command line Twitter client, if it had been a web app, for example, I probably would have written some high level tests, uh, some some integration tests to make sure that everything was was working uh, in a sane way. But I never, even though I didn't test that imperative shell, I never encountered a bug because of that. Um, it's well, I, I would, but that was when I was cowboying some code when I was spiking it. Um, but I never encountered a bug in in any time other than when I was spiking code in the imperative shell. And there's really only I, I think three conditionals, and they all fire like all the time. so there's there's very little risk there. the The other thing is um, I, I say this in a screencast that I, I keep the shell at a fixed size. So it's about I think it's about one hundred and fifty character or one hundred fifty lines, I say, something like that. And I'll grow it to to prototype new stuff, but then once I've prototyped it, I TDD it into an actual class. So the imperative shell is not growing, and I don't know what happens when the program gets sufficiently large that 150 characters at the outside is is noise compared to the size of it. I don't I don't know what happens there, um, but but for my fairly small program, it's it's worked wonderfully, which which of course is the asterisk on like every programming argument ever. Yeah, that, that,
3: and and that's that's a segue into the thing that I wanted to ask you about next, which is that, um, okay, so, so we've been, I've been reading the drafts of uh, Sandy Metz's book coming out, which is going to be phenomenal. And, and she makes a point that object oriented design is, is not about writing a little piece of software right now. It's about dealing with change that happens over the lifetime of a code base and setting yourself up with some uh, foresight so that when when you need to change things it won't be it won't be crazy and the you know what we, what you've been talking about today and what you just said me sounds like okay you, you have something that works for creating some piece of software right now and it makes you uh, feel uh, confident that it's going to do certain things certain ways and it has you know great advantages for you know in a particular area but you don't really know how that's going to perform in the face of having to change things as you maintain the software over time.
1: Um, that, is, uh, that, is, that is certainly true for, for me, um, but one of my reasons for doing this was watching the successes that have existed in the functional space with languages like Haskell, where this is, this is what they do. Like this is, not, this is not one of their tools. This is their tool. The, the imperative shell is the way they build software. And in Haskell, the imperative shell is the outer layer of the program that has I.O. on its types. Mm-hmm. Um, and that works. The, the problem that, that they run into is, as the program scales, the, it does get more difficult to reason about that. And I, in the screencast, I think I actually mentioned at the end that um, a single shell is probably not the way to do this. What you want is is components that are functional core imperative shell and communicate with each other. So it's a, it's a program of small programs, which, of course, is is a thing that everyone has been advocating for program design since programs were a thing. So just because, and, it, it, sorry, go ahead.
3: Uh, well, I, I'm wondering if you, if you start following that in a particular direction, do you end up with object-oriented programs? Maybe. I mean, for- I mean, you have more and more of these imperative shells with functional cores. And as soon as you have a couple dozen of them, you know, don't you have you know, a typical object-oriented system?
1: Well, I wouldn't say typical because a typical oo system has no no mutable immutable segregation in it whatsoever. whereas if you if you did uh, the thing that we're talking about and you did it many times within one program, I mean, yes, you would have units that have imperative external interfaces and functional cores, but the functional core is a new thing. and that's probably it's it's got to be at least eighty percent of the weight of the system uh, in order to to really say you're doing this, and probably more than 80%. So, I mean, in a very roundabout way, I would say yes, but, uh, but I think it's, it's a different thing.
3: Okay.
5: okay. For what it's and worth, that, that is how the, how the goose, uh, authors, growing object oriented software authors, um, are kind of advocating for is the, they actually, they use a slightly different term, but it's, it's actually kind of reminiscent of functional core imperative shell.
0: That, I was exactly going to say just that, but, uh, they talk about basically putting a layer of your own objects between you and uh, between you and every outside source that you have to talk to, right? And, right? and that layer, which to them is basically an adapter, and they're doing it for the reason that they can mock something that they control as opposed to something that they don't. But if you flip that around. It, it can also be uh basically Gary's idea of the imperative shell, right? Well,
5: the shell also, um I, I don't know if you've gotten this far in the book, um, but uh, they also more explicitly get into like the actual in the actual structure of objects themselves. You know, uh, basically they talk about having an imperative um API and um and functional innards.
1: Yeah, that's no, I, true. I have not I have not gotten that far. I did not realize that.
0: That's true. They do kind of. They do kind of bring that up at one point about how how having some functional behaviors in the core makes it easier to uh, control and reason about. That's that's a good point.
1: I think that um, so something, Josh. Josh, you were talking about. Um, I forget the person's name, but but that's somebody's book that you're reviewing.
3: Uh, Sandy Metz, Yeah,
1: Sandy Metz, Right. Um, and you you mentioned that uh, you you. You said that uh, that that book talks a lot about inter- interfaces, basically, right? Or that it focuses on on interfaces a bit. Uh, I, I don't think I said
3: books? I don't think I said interfaces. I, I think okay. that you know, she she talks about the point of object-oriented design being setting yourself up for being able to adapt to in the face of change.
1: Okay, I'm sorry. So what I was saying was my inference from that, which is that the. <laughs> Um, if you're doing goose style OO, the the interfaces are are the mechanism by which you're setting yourself up for change. Um, okay. Not interface in the Java sense, but interface in the sense of the boundaries between objects, and that's that is the that is the fundamental reason that that I'm doing this as well, um, because it, the, either either passing value in, value in, value out or or doing uh, Goose-style outside in mocking, both of those are mechanisms for focusing on the interface between the objects. And I think this is exactly what the functional people have been doing when they say uh, smart smart data structures and stupid functions. I think that that is another way of focusing on the interface between things so that the things themselves can vary independently. Um, I have the feeling these are all sort of different ways of expressing the same idea, and it's probably a very fundamental uh, maybe the most fundamental part of software maintenance.
3: Well, the, uh, there have certainly been a number of languages designed that that focused on the interface and and put a lot of mechanism and structure around uh, you know characterizing the interface in a in a in a useful way. To, I, I, I've worked in uh, in uh Eric said, this language called Mesa, which uh, had this really formal interface thing, and if you, it it, 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 it wasn't really that much different from C header files, except that they were compiled separately. So if you could actually decouple the implementation in the interface, and drop in a different implementation, and and none of the dependent modules would ever have to be recompiled. So that was that was. Yeah, that was the first I saw that in a really structured way. So yes, peop- I'm just saying people have put in a lot of energy focusing on the interfaces, focusing on um, on that part of the system, and uh, so yeah, I think I agree that that's, that's a big important part of things. So what's a
5: good brain teaser? Um, like if somebody was to li- were to listen to this and then want to play with these ideas on their own, what's a good you know kata uh, something to start with? You know, try to try to do such and so only do it without any any uh, mutable internals. Uh, do you have any ideas?
1: Well, I the the project I used in the screencast was was a Twitter client, and I think that is close to an ideal example um, because. It, it is, as I think you said, Avdi, it's a single direction of data flow throughout the system. So keystrokes come in, you make decisions, and screen goes out. And there's also network and disk, but um, it's pretty much unidirectional. And also, we haven't talked about this at all, but my Twitter client has several threads going at any given time. And I built a very small actor library um, just for the fun of it. It's about 40 lines, I want to say, of Ruby. Um, and the, the, that is another topic that, that where having all these values is wonderful because you can pass one of these values into a thread and they're all immutable, so you don't even have to copy it. You just hand, them a re- hand, the, other refer- hand the other thread a reference to your object and you know that that thread is not going to do anything bad to you because it can't, because the value is immutable. Um, so uh, a Twitter client involves generally a few threads. It's mostly unidirectional data flow. Uh, it's a really good example, and it's also a wonderful opportunity for you to manually implement, implement uh, VT100 character codes for, for the color and positioning, which, which I highly recommend as an exercise, ah, ah, ah. because I have realized through writing this Twitter client, I'm going to totally digress here, but I've realized that people think that curses is a special thing, like it does something special, but all curses does is print VT one hundred or VT two twenty or whatever terminal uh, escape codes to standard out. That's all it really does. There's no magic there. Anyway, end of digression. That's hilarious.
3: I, I, I did say that this uh, that this episode was going to be about ADD. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. Um... I snuck
4: out of a twenty person meeting to be here, and I am <laughs> over over medicated, which is why I have not been jumping in at every other <laughs> sentence. <laughs>
0: That, um, that point you were talking about, about the threading, that actually comes up in uh, in Goos as it goes on as well. In, in their example, they're building an auction sniper and uh, an auction sniping application. And so they're dealing with this auction API, which is basically XMPP, uh, and it's got its own you know threading for that. And then they're using Swing, Java Swing for the GUI, uh, which of course has its own threading and stuff. And they do talk about the value of, of being able to hand it uh, immutable objects. So yeah, they definitely agree with you on that point.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a huge win. And um, I don't know if this is the reason that Erlang is a functional language, but I think it's one of the big ones, right? Is that uh, they want to, when you, when you do an in-process send, they can just copy the object to the other process, and when they say process, sometimes they mean thread, and sometimes, well, really they mean green thread, but um, they can, because everything's immutable, they can just copy the references to the values around instead of deep copying, and it's a huge performance win for, for any threaded system. Right.
0: It's a lot of interesting ideas. It's, a, it's interesting the way, uh, as, as you know, separate groups evolve, they seem to be closing in on these kind of similar ideas. It's interesting to see that happen.
1: And of course, closures at the middle of it because it, it has all this stuff baked right into it. And I don't, I don't even like closure, but I like almost every idea in it.
5: Right. I'm just waiting for somebody to, uh, to implement C-Loss on closure just to make Richiki's head explode.
3: <laughs> and mine. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, the, the, I'm, a. Uh, yeah, Gary, Gary, have you have you read the um the like early history of small talk papers?
1: I have not.
3: No. Okay. I, there's a there's if you go to like smalltalk.org, they have history papers you can read. Uh, you know, like Alan Kay's writing about the original stuff, and they and they talk about the relationship of of small talk to the actor model and how that. And then from there, you can infer how it evolved up into Erlang. And the, it it's interesting how the how at its core, object orientation and functional programming uh, are so similar and yet so different. The, and we, we talked about this a bit recently when we had Michael Feathers on and talking about OOP versus functional. But the, but the, you, know, you were you were calling Erlang a functional language, and yeah, you know, that, that's like a whole other conversation to have. But I'm just going to say I find that a you know, people look at Erlang and they think of it as functional and and I, I look at it as, as extremely object-oriented. Well, of course, I haven't, th- I haven't done a ton in Erlang, so it, uh, you know that's probably not a fair way to think of it.
1: Er- Erlang sort of embodies this distinction that we've been talking about the, the whole episode. Um, yeah. Within a single running actor, it is a functional language. Functions call other functions, they return values, there's pattern matching. Um, but between the processes between the actors that looks uh, quite a bit like an OO system although they don't have methods um, although usually they re-implement methods in like every single actor basically by doing tagged tuples uh, but yeah I think that, that Erlang sort of embodies this and it's, and it's old right it's not, it's not new there's nothing new about this we're just uh, as, as usual in this industry rediscovering things over and over again and, and we think they're new
3: yeah. Everything old is new again.
0: I think it's interesting, though, in, in the newer form that we seem to be finding that that OO and functional programming can play well to the other, you know, in certain contexts and that there, there are things they excel at. You know, the whole article about, um, uh, you know, uh, functional below and, and object orientation on top, you know, that kind of thing seems to be the growing pattern
2: this time around. Yeah. It's kind of funny to me how for a while it was like functional or OO and now it's, you know, kind of the, the interesting blend that we see and how some of the, some of the functional features that we see implemented in our object oriented languages make it more powerful and don't really detract from it.
1: Although I do have to say that um, what, what I've been advocating is good OO design for, For a few years now, is really not OO. I mean, when I when I advocate services and values as your primary design mechanisms, that is not OO. Uh, Not it's not the OO that Alan Kay was talking about for sure. No more than C is. Um, So,
2: what is it then? What what uh, would you
3: call
1: it? I don't know. Just imperative programming (laughs) with namespaces. I mean, yeah. So so, uh,
3: I think programming style is. Often much more interesting than the language that you're programming in. And I, I've said for a long time, although maybe not recently, that I can do object-oriented programming in almost any language. I can write object-oriented code in assembly language. Mm-hmm. And you know, by just controlling how I'm approaching the problem. Yeah. And, absolutely. And and I've seen a lot of Fortran written in Smalltalk. So, <laughs> 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 no. so so you know, the, the language can definitely um, help support a particular style of programming and, and, you know, and the converse. It can also interfere with particular styles of programming. But the style of programming and the, and the, the kind of abstractions that you're using are really what's important. And, and we've been finding that in object-oriented programming for a long time. We have all these design patterns now, which were really about what's your programming style? What's the, what's the kind of abstractions you're using to characterize your problems? Right.
0: Yeah, and I, I would say that um, you know Gary the the thing you've been showing over and over again uh, would destroy all software the whole services and values um, you know while while that's maybe not traditional I would say it's the I would say it's becoming the popular style of OO I mean it's very much advocated in Goos they 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 don't call services services but it's the same thing but and they do call value objects values so. Uh, they're they're definitely using the same approach.
2: Yep. All right. Well, we're getting close to picks. Are there any other topics we need to go over before we uh, get into that?
0: I have
4: a question. Is there, Gary, do you ever run into a problem when you start to round trip where um, you've pulled this object, say, from somewhere, but secretly we know it's a database, and uh, you modify it, which means you copy it, and then somebody else, you hand it down the chain, and they they modify it, and they copy it. Um, meanwhile, um, you know Janet has loaded the same object and she started modifying it. Right? I mean, this is the same. This is the, the central problem of CouchDB. Um, at some point, both of you are going to want to save your updated copy of that object. Does 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 the whole thing fall apart at that point, or do you have to have a really really clever merge strategy, or what?
1: Um, well, l- let me let me answer your question with with the description of a very hypothetical world. Okay. Uh, a world which may exist in, in certain Haskell programs. <laughs> um, a, a controller in, in the MVC sense is a function that takes an HTTP request and a state of the database and returns an HTTP response and a set of objects that were modified that should be written. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you think of the top level in that way, assuming that the controller is, is your conceptual top level of the program, then all the code you call can, can do whatever it wants and just keep returning, returning, returning... New versions of database records, and then the the level above the controller, which would be the uh, imperative shell, can can merge that into the database and and commit them all. Um, I don't know if that actually answers your question, but but that's the that is that is one of the examples that I use to to sort of because I think that you you think about mutating a thing and saving it, but but really it's a value that exists at the end of the request when the transaction is committed. That's mm-hmm. when you want to change the database,
3: right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: There's actually a really good uh, uh, series of episodes in Destroy All Software not too long back uh, where Gary re-implemented uh, Sucks Rocks in, uh, as a Rails application. And it's a really neat series to go watch uh, for what you were just talking about, David, in that like, it, he, he goes a long time before he inter- even introduces Rails at all. And then when he does introduce Rails, finally, it's mainly as uh, a persistence layer. I mean, uh, also as a display layer. But but uh, what he does with Active records is really cool in that, like, he only defines like two class methods on the model, and they're basically like, "Go get me this," and "Go put this back in the database." <laughs> Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the beginning of a request, he uses the go get me this, you know, and then at the end of the request, it's like, go get this back, go shove this back in the database, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. It's Mm -hmm. a very interesting way to think about it. Okay.
2: Yeah, I I think I'm finally going to sign up for Destroy
4: All software. You should. It's freaking awesome.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's absolutely. I mean, I I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Just, you know, the amount of stuff I've learned from it. um, Gary talked a lot about his main... uh, threads in it, but on his Unix side, uh, he shows shell scripting, which is just absolutely phenomenal. I've, I've learned so many tricks from his shell scripting. Vim usage, I'm, I'm not even a Vim user, and I enjoy watching that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, Git, he shows lots of things about Git, uh, especially if you want to get into uh, messing around with different, you know, going back through your history and finding out things about your repository and stuff like that. Uh, it's very interesting. It's very educational.
4: I'm teaching a... I've, I've mentioned this before, but I'm working with a team of .NET refugees that are new to Ruby, and we're using RSpec, and they're like, this is just blowing my mind that you can call methods on integers, and, and RSpec is just this infinitely deep thing of, of magic. And I'm like, no, you can't. You can r- No, it's not. You can write RSpec in 15 minutes. Well, Gary can. Here, watch. And <laughs> when it was over... There was not a chin that was not lying slack on its owner's chest um, in the room. They were like, holy freaking crap. And I'm like, yep, Ruby's that awesome, and Gary's that smart. And and spec is no longer that scary.
2: Nice. All right, well, let's get into the picks. Um, James, do you want to start us off?
0: Okay, I'll do it. I only have one pick this time because it's so colossally important. Um, I just discovered... Uh, Uh, Katrina Owen's talk on uh, therapeutic refactoring uh, from Scottish RubyConf. Pick Uh, Thief. Pick Thief. Pick Thief. Ha, 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 ha. ha. Yay for Chuck letting me go first. Um, So, uh, Avdi,
2: what are your picks?
0: Hey, yeah. (laughs) Uh, This talk is absolutely sensational. Like, I I would almost argue – that it's maybe the ideal refactoring talk and you would have a hard time producing a better one. Uh, and we'll get into why of all of that, because I liked it so much. I asked Katrina to be on the show and she's going to be here in two weeks. So you oh, awesome. absolutely must go watch this talk. It is just sensational. It's really, really great. So go watch it. And then we'll talk to her in two weeks and talk about how cool it is.
2: Nice. All right, Avdi, what are your picks?
5: Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and re- reiterate that anyway. Uh, I, I just watched that talk last night, and uh, it is it is nothing short of sublime. Uh, not just for the information pre- presented, but uh, for the the flow of it. It it frankly gave me gave me an inferiority complex as a <laughs> presenter. Um, <laughs> it uh, it's it's just. It's one of those talks that's just, it's just a joy to watch. I mean, you can just sit back and just kind of grin your way through it because every part of every moment of it is, is just, I don't know. It's just pleasurable. If if you've dealt with any kind of, you know, refactoring cruddy code at all, um, it's just so much fun to watch. Um, Let's see Uh, another code oriented pick. So um, I don't know where to go. I had this up. Quick, somebody else do a pick. I need to find this again.
4: All right, Chuck, I've actually got to get back to my lunch hour's backup. Do you want me to go next? Yes. Okay, I have one pick, and it's going to be fast because I have to drop off the call in about 60 seconds. Uh, Charitynavigator.org. We got a phone call last week from some agency that was, you know, helping uh, battered women and, and finding missing children, and... Um, they were like, you know, can we count on you for a donation? And Liz was like, well, I, I guess so. She's like, no, I need a commitment from you because it costs us to send you the mailer. And Liz was like, okay, I'll send you $20, I guess. And so they mailed out this thing. In the meanwhile, we kind of scratched our head and said, that was kind of a weird phone call. So the, the envelope arrives and, uh, we, it looks very, you know, legitimate. And we go to charity. I Googled for, is there a way to check out a charity? And like the first Hit was charitynavigator.org. We typed in the name of the charity, and it turns out that 100% of their expenses um, go to funding the charity and charity operations. None of their money actually goes to finding missing children. And uh, so we gave our uh, $20 to a nationally Uh, accredited and transparent uh, Missing Children's Foundation so that's my pick, it's charitynavigator.org it's awesome Um, basically if you like a charity and you want to find out they basically they show the financial transparency and the the efficiency of the organization so you can see how much of your money goes to uh, actually doing what you want that charity to do and you can see how much they're uh, lying about their reports or how much they're covering up their reports it's pretty awesome
2: Nice. All right, cool. Uh, Josh, what are your picks?
3: Oh, I, I, I have like six or seven written down here, but I'm not going to do them all today. I'll save some for next week. Uh, okay, so uh, my first pick is an iPhone app uh, from uh, some classmates of mine from Rock Health. They are called Cardio, and it's cardi.io. So there's two eyes in it. And they have this cool uh, iPhone app that lets you check your pulse, you know, measure your heart rate just by holding the phone and it uses the front facing camera to uh, do some uh, like visual processing of your, it can actually see like the blood flow patterns in your face by using certain wavelengths of light. And the, one of the founders of cardio was at MIT and did all this research in the lab there and figured out how to do this. So it's like real science, it's not a toy. And the, they're going to eventually be expanding the app to do all sorts of other things like blood oxygenation and uh, blood pressure and various things like that. So it's, it's eventually going to be like a medical tricorder.
4: Yeah, tricorders <laughs> are coming. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> and, uh, and So right now you can download it from the iTunes store. It's $5. And if you think of that compared to if you had to go buy an actual device to measure your, pulp, your pulse rate, it's a good buy. So uh, oh. I, and, and it's just like really great to use too. It's like you, you can, you can show this to somebody in a bar and they'll be like, nah, you're not, not, not. <laughs> yeah. that People, people react in very uh, funny ways to this. So it's, it's pretty cool. And the, and the promise of the future is, is just amazing. So it's worth it just for that. Now and I'm going to have to get
2: a Star Trek soundboard. Oh yeah. For the show.
3: <laughs> great. Um, Okay, and then the other thing I, I learned about recently, uh, somebody at Steel City RubyConf uh, got up and presented about this, and I feel really bad that I am uh, blanking on his name at the moment, but uh, it's called Git Tip, and if, so if you go to gittip.com, tip it's a way that you can tip people in the open source community and thank them for their efforts. So as an experiment, I threw up a, a profile there and. Uh, I'm now making $5 a week from people who are uh, expressing their uh, thanks and support for me doing stuff like Ruby Rogues and running a conference and all that other stuff I don't make money on. So. I
2: think I think most of us signed up for that. I know James did and I did.
3: Yeah. The, yeah. So, it, you know, I think that um, it's, a, it's an interesting experiment. It's only been around for, I think, a, about a month. And... Yeah, we'll see where it goes, but it's can, it's worth checking out.
4: Can they go negative? Like, hurt like if hurt. I if I sign up, am I going to end up having to pay four hundred dollars a week?
0: Take money away.
4: Yeah, <laughs> that,
2: that's right, Dave. Um, you... We're going to suck
4: you dry. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, there's well, ca- there's karma to consider, is what I'm asking. <laughs> I just want to. Say are you that... afraid of karma, or are you? <laughs> I've long learned since learned to be afraid of karma. Terrified. <laughs> Because I deserve it. I just want it. to say that, that 100% of
5: my get tips uh, go towards finding missing children. Um, it's just that uh, you, you might need to know that the missing children in question are mine who have wandered off into the, uh, the backyard. <laughs> when I wasn't
0: That's it. I'm donating to Opti Price now. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
4: I actually have bragged about the No More Homeless Dave's Foundation. Um, <laughs> and uh which which is a code name for I'm spending all this money on me. <laughs> is that like the red-headed league? Uh kind of only this uh, the No More Homeless Dave's Foundation is is specifically dedicated to paying my rent.
0: Plus he was bald, so the red-headed thing didn't work for him. Yep. You, know? yep.
3: <laughs> you you have a degree in creative accounting.
4: Yes. <laughs> yes.
3: Okay, I have one last uh pick and that's kind of quick and that's Alfred. And uh he yes. so this yeah, so Alfred is like Launchbar or QuickSilver or you know any of those application launchers and I've you've used all of them and I like Alfred the best and somebody mentioned launch- or I think uh, Tenderlove was complaining about how slow Launchbar is to start up and that's exactly the reason that I switched from Launchbar to Alfred. It just it's a lot snappier. Uh it, there's a free version of it that does everything I need. And then they have a paid uh, power pack or something that lets you do a lot more integration with your system and have a lot more functionality. So Alfred is is pretty nice and um, so worth checking out. So that, that's enough for me today. I'm saving some for next week.
4: Actually, Josh, I have a question for you. Um, I'm still using Quicksilver, which hasn't been updated like in 28 years. Yeah. Um, And I've tried Launch Bar, hated it. Um, I've tried going back to Spotlight. That obviously didn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't considered Alfred. Should I? Yes. Okay.
3: That's why I just picked it, man. I was going to (laughs) say. Well, I was just.
4: Let me me rephrase the question. Uh, My return type is not Boolean. Um, So let me rephrase the question to can can you compare and contrast and say why Alfred is better?
3: Uh, Quicksilver had a lot of instability at one point. And so I had gone from LaunchBar to Quicksilver because LaunchBar was unstable at one of the system updates and then and I used Quicksilver for a while but then it got really unstable and it was crashing my system like literally I you know my system would just you know blue screen of death or core mm. dump or something and yeah. I stopped using Quicksilver and that problem went away and okay. and so
4: yeah I I just I
3: think the problems with Quicksilver I don't know if they ever got
4: solved but mm. See, I have no problems with it, which is why I'm still on it. But well, it, works, it ain't broke, works on my machine, so you know. <laughs> if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah.
0: Quicksilver was really the best of the breed, in my opinion. The way it, the way it was built and designed, Launch bar was really inconsistent, in my opinion, with its interface and stuff like that. Alfred was real minimal when it came out. Um, so it, I liked it kind of like Quicksilver, but it was minimal and it didn't do enough of what I used it for. Um, but as they've updated it and grown it, it's really grown into like this awesome system. So now I think Alfred is, is about as cool as Quicksilver, uh, in its usage. And, and like Josh, I had tons of problems once, uh, it, it was before Lion, it was Snow Leopard. I began to have tons of problems with Quicksilver. So.
4: Mm. Does it have big text mode?
0: Yes, you can do full
4: screen text, yes. Okay, all right, I'll look at it. All right, cool.
2: Avdi, did you find what you were looking for?
5: I did, I did. Uh, So there's a a new article up by Jim Gay called The Gang of Four is Wrong and You Don't Understand Delegation, which is a nice (laughs) provocative title and um, I will, I'll be honest, I've only skimmed it at this point, but I think there's some, some good stuff in there. If nothing else, I think delegation is a, it's, it's a topic that, that's near and dear to me, and I think it's, it hasn't been as well served as it could be in, in the Ruby community because I think we've, we've as, as he points out, we've only got some sort of a couple of bare-bones mechanisms for it, but uh, there's kind of a, a bigger world of delegation out there that'd be nice to, to explore a bit more. Uh, so probably worth a read. And uh, I think I'll do a booze pick as well. Uh, this this is a beer pick, and it's not one of my obscure Pennsylvania beers this time. This one actually has pretty wide distribution. Uh, it's a Stone IPA. I uh, it was it, it was International IPA Day a few weeks ago, and my local local beer store did a, an IPA tasting, and the uh, the Stone IPA was the the real standout for me. Um, we also tried the stone ruination IPA, which is also good, but, but for like a, an everyday drinking IPA, I think the, uh, I actually preferred the, the regular stone IPA. So as, as IPAs go, it's, it's, uh, you know, about as good as it gets, or at least as close as I've tasted.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in with a couple of, uh, picks the, of shows that I've been watching off Netflix. Um, the one, one is... And this is an old show that was on when I was in high school, and I never really got into it. And uh, I'm going to give you kind of some background here. Um, Anyway, Dave Brady talked me into checking out Firefly when I was working with him. (laughs) And uh, so I checked it out, and I really liked it. And then I got into some of the other stuff that Joss, Joss Whedon did. And, uh, I was talking to some folks quite a while back and they were saying, well, yeah, you know, Joss Whedon did, uh, you know, all this stuff, including Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I was like, well, wasn't that kind of a dumb show, but I'd never really watched it. So <laughs> I finally decided to check it out and I'm about halfway through season two right now. So, uh, that, that's one pick is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I haven't oh, seen,
3: th- I have in no- for a ride. <laughs> I have yeah. not seen the movie. <laughs> Don't watch the
2: movie. Don't watch the movie. Not worth it.
3: It's 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 basically insanity. It's it has nothing well, to do with the TV show. It's unrelated.
4: It's, put it that yeah, way. I, I liked the movie, but it's not. It, the, yeah, two different things. Right. I like
0: it too, but it took a very different approach. It's not the same thing. Yeah. Okay.
5: Yeah, well, the movie was basically somebody took the took. Joss Whedon's idea and and wrote a one-off movie about it and then eventually he got to take take the idea back and, and make an actual show
3: yeah he's he's disowned the movie oh really
4: he has
3: he has just, yeah. you know like apparently Donald Sutherland just like destroyed the movie yeah i'm I'm
2: trying to decide if I want to because I know that the they spun off Angel and I'm trying to decide if I want to watch the two concurrently, you know, as they were released or not but
3: yeah it, you you actually need to do that when when the Angel show came out, there were some storylines that crossed over
4: you're watching them on if you're watching them on DVD uh, whenever the crossovers happen, they are they include the crossover episode. So we actually went straight through Buffy and then straight through Angel, and it actually made sense. There, there were a, there were some, some points that we were like, what was that? You know, why are they calling that girl Fred? Um, kind of moments, mm-hmm. but uh, they they include the Angel bits in Buffy, and then when you get to that part in Angel, they include that Buffy episode, so that, it makes that,
3: sense. That must be a, a different uh, DVD release than I have. Yeah, I'm okay. watching them on Netflix,
2: so we'll see.
4: Oh, yeah, you're screwed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> mm. Anyway, the other show is um, it's Bones. Um, my wife and I, we kind of like the, the crime drama shows and, and that, that one's kind of got some interesting, you know, storylines running through it. But at the same time, I mean, each one's its own little mystery. And so you can, you know, you can watch each episode and you might miss some of the character interactions, but you know, you can follow the show and we've really been enjoying that. So, um, you know, if, if we want to just do something kind of low key that we're not, um, you know, and we're not going out to do something. Then, then a lot of times we'll just watch Bones. So, and those are both on Netflix. Um, Gary, what are your picks?
4: Actually, you guys, uh, my team is coming back in, so I've got to drop off. Okay. Um, love you. Bye. Call me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's <it>. That's... <laughs> oh my!
3: Gary, uh, can, can you recover from this, please?
1: Um. Well, I'll. I'll... <laughs> I'll do my best uh, I have two picks the first is something I mentioned earlier which is VT100 escape codes I want you to go implement them from scratch they're so easy and you will understand how the terminal works it's how everything works it's how like vim and Emacs draw themselves on the screen um, so we'll put a link to to like a, a reference document for that but like if you want to set the color to green you just emit Character twenty seven, I think, which is escape, and then left bracket, and then uh, the number thirty two or uh, character thirty two semicolon m. Like it's really easy to do these things, and curse it's all curses does. And my second pick is uh, I'm actually going to I'm working on maybe possibly organizing a conference. Uh, it's going to be called Ann Conference, like the article Ann a n. And uh, I just just before this podcast, I registered anconf.com and anconference.com so that if I mentioned it here, no one would squat them. Um, so please come to that when it happens. It's going to be awesome, and everything in it, all the speakers are going to be handpicked by me for uh, for speaking ability, not for like it's a Ruby guy or something like that. Um, so those are my two.
3: You'll sound more hoity-toity if you use the term curated.
1: I I, I actually intentionally did not do that. I think I did that uh, on the pre-conference chatter or the (laughs) pre-podcast chatter. (laughs)
3: Okay. Well, so you can be a man of the people now.
1: Yes. I can pretend.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, um, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, Like James said earlier, next week we're going to be talking to uh, the authors of Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. And – you can go sign up for Ruby rogues on the or Ruby rogues, Ruby rogues parlay on the Ruby rogues website, RubyRogues.com. And that's also where you can get the show notes. And, um, are there any other announcements or things that we want to bring up before we wrap this up?
0: Just want to say thanks to Gary for coming in and doing this. He had to wake up early. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yep. Thanks, know, thanks
3: Gary. Thanks Gary. I feel your pain. <laughs> All right.
2: We'll, uh, we'll catch y'all later. Um, looking forward to that episode next week
3: bye folks goodbye later
2: bye